The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Alexis Goldsmith. She is the National Organizing Director at Beyond Plastics, where she is focused on building the grassroots movement that connects plastics to issues like climate change, environmental justice, and health. Ms. Goldsmith works with organizers across the United States on activities like setting up reusables in Meals on Wheels programs and supporting grassroots activists in their media and advocacy endeavors. She's a graduate of Indiana University in Bloomington with a degree in dietetics as well as a degree in English. And prior to joining Beyond Plastics, Ms. Goldsmith managed a farm co-founded the Hudson Mohawk Environmental Action Network, which is a grassroots consortium fighting for environmental justice and indigenous rights along the Hudson River. And she was an independent journalist focused on environmental justice issues in New York's capital region. Welcome, Alexis. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm really interested in your work and how you went from degrees in English and dietetics to your work in plastics. What was the spark that got you interested? Well, I was studying to be a dietitian at Indiana University and started Woofing, which is Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms, on a farm in upstate New York. And I really enjoyed working on that farm. It was a small sheep farm, and I would come back every summer. And one summer, I had a near-death experience on a waterfall, Catterskill Falls, And realized that I didn't want to be a dietitian, that I was going to be unhappy on that life path, even though I really enjoyed the material and food. So I went back, added the English degree, graduated and moved to New York to manage this farm. And while I was on that farm, I got on the planning board for that small town, Bern, New York. And that was really where I got my introduction to politics I went to the Sanctuary for Independent Media from the farm as an intern for their radio program. They have a community news program where anybody can be a reporter, basically, for the community and produce radio interviews and radio stories. And from intern, I worked for them for a while and became the executive producer for that program. And then I became the coordinator for the community garden there. And that's when I started really getting into community organizing in that area because it's an environmental justice area that's facing a lot of waste incineration and disposal issues. So I started community organizing and Judith Ank is local and she was helping us on some of those issues. And she offered me the position of National Organizing Director at Beyond Plastics. So Judith Ank, just to clarify for our listeners, is the Executive Director at Beyond Plastics. And do you want to tell us a little bit about this organization? Beyond Plastics is a national project that's based out of Bennington College in Vermont. And we use our policy expertise Uh, Judith is the former EPA Region 2 Administrator. She was appointed by President Obama. 
And after she left that position, she founded Beyond Plastics because she felt that there was not enough attention on this issue from either politicians, the media, or the grassroots movement on climate. So that's what we do is we basically educate all of those stakeholders and then we mobilize them. So we introduce policies that address this issue. We educate the media on how to report on plastics, on what, you know, all the intricacies of it are. And I personally work with grassroots organizers on the issue. So many different levels of engagement there. You know, I think the media does a really good job in teaching us how important plastics are in terms of convenience from a climate perspective. When I've spoken with food producers, for example, and I've encouraged them to go back to glass or some other container material that is more recyclable, I'm told that it's just too expensive to do something other than plastic. So there are lots of barriers, I think, both in our understanding of plastics as well as understanding that there are indeed alternatives. So how do you navigate that thorny issue? Well, we actually teach a whole class on this because it is such a big issue through Bennington College. Judith teaches that class. And then from there, we do lots of public speaking and engagement talks, education talks to just get people introduced to the issue. But man, I don't even know where to start because... For most people, plastic is part of their everyday life and they don't really see where it comes from or where it goes after they're done using it. And the point that plastic is convenient or there aren't better alternatives is really just the industry talking point right out of the American Chemistry Council's playbook that we can't live without plastic because we certainly have lived without plastic for most of human existence. I would say people should know that plastics are manufactured from oil and gas, and increasingly they are manufactured from hydraulic fractured gases in the United States. And it's really production that's driving the plastic in your life and how much plastic you're using and not consumption or demand. Because even if you want to avoid using plastic, as you said, we don't really have much of a choice in how much plastic we get to use. And then after we dispose of it, Because plastic is flawed by design, it doesn't break down, it doesn't biodegrade, it does break down. It has to go somewhere and it accumulates somewhere, whether it's in the environment, in a landfill, or in an incinerator where it becomes air pollution. Mm. Yeah, let's talk about the recycling myth. So my understanding is that the industry was very careful to promote recycling as opposed to finding alternatives to plastic. And yet, out of all the plastics that's ever been produced, the statistic I saw from an excellent film on plastics, which I will provide a link to, is that 91% of all the plastic that's ever existed, 91% has never been recycled. Yes, that's true. It's a depressing statistic. Less than 9% of plastic gets recycled. And in fact, only 2% is effectively recycled meaning that it's turned into another product of equal or greater value. The rest is downcycled, meaning it's eventually just disposed of. So 
To put that into perspective, since 1950, the world has produced nearly 10 billion tons of plastic. That's more than a ton of plastic for every person on Earth. And all of that plastic still exists somewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, 12% of that has been incinerated or burned. And approximately a third of it has leaked into the environment, which is obviously very concerning. But it all still exists. And what's even more disturbing is that half of that plastic, half of that 10 billion tons has been produced after the year 2000 because due in large part to the fracking boom in the United States. Well, I had a couple of aha moments with regard to plastic. I was on a beach in Mexico and I saw plastic piling up along the coast like I had never seen before. And certainly, you know, when I walk along the beaches in the United States, I always see plastic trash, but I probably see it more now. And once where I used to pick up shells, I pick up plastic now, and then I photograph my collection at the end of the walk. And I think, my goodness, where is all of this plastic coming from out of the ocean? How does it get there? Well, it starts on land and it gets there from a myriad different number of ways. So if you live inland, for example, it may get there as litter on the street and then you get a heavy rain and the rain washes it into the storm drains, which wash into your nearest river system, which eventually finds its way to the ocean. Water circulates all over the world. So whatever we're doing to the water where we're at is what we're doing to our oceans. It gets there from people flushing things down their toilets that shouldn't be flushed, like tampon applicators or wet wipes are actually made of plastic, and then they end up in water systems that way. And they get there from the global north, shipping their low-value plastic waste to the global south and the Asian Pacific regions of the world where they accumulate in coastal countries that don't have a way to dispose of it. And again, plastic is flawed by design. There's no way to waste manage our way out of this issue because you just pick it up and put it somewhere else. And the United States' solution has been to ship it somewhere else so that it's out of sight, out of mind. But once it's in those coastal countries, it very easily winds up in the ocean and and rivers. Hmm. Now you've said twice that plastic is flawed by design. And for me, that means it's flawed because it is impossible to biodegrade or to easily turn into something else that can be reused over and over again. What do you mean by that? That's exactly what I mean is that it doesn't biodegrade. It just accumulates And it's very hazardous once it begins to accumulate like that. So how does it accumulate exactly? Well, we keep extracting, I say we, but I mean, of course, oil and gas companies, extracting fossil fuels and turning them into plastics. So pumping more and more plastics into the environment. And then from there, it just accumulates wherever it winds up, whether it's in a landfill or the ocean or an incinerator. And it's kind of like if your bathtub was flooding and you, the tap was on full blast, like the obvious solution would be to turn off the tap before you start trying to clean up the mess. Right. Yeah. That's a really good analogy. Well, I was 
interested to see how plastic broke down. And I was really interested in this idea of microplastics, especially because we know that plastics and fossil fuel products in general are endocrine disruptors. So they upset our hormonal regulatory systems in the body. And then I realized that, oh my gosh, we're breathing microplastics in dust. They become embedded in the flesh of fish. And I believe it was recently reported on a special webinar that was done through Orion and your organization that mentioned that plastics are now found in the placenta. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's now ubiquitous in the environment. And the way plastic breaks down is that, as I said, a third of plastic waste, it's estimated, winds up in the environment. So again, waste management is not the solution here because we just can't even collect it all. Once it's in the environment, it begins to break down from UV rays and mechanical abrasion in the ocean, like from waves and wind. And by breakdown, it's not biodegrading, but just breaking down into smaller and smaller and eventually microscopic pieces, which circulate everywhere in the air, water, and they're, they're also in our food. And you're right, they've been found in human placentas and they've been found in human lung tissue and humans are actively avoiding eating plastic. So the problem is much worse for wildlife, unfortunately. Mm. Let me take one break because we're halfway through and just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us or tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, we are speaking with Ms. Alexis Goldsmith. She is the National Organizing Director at Beyond Plastics, where she is focused on building the grassroots movement that connects plastics to issues like climate change, environmental justice, and health. And we have been focusing in the last few minutes about health issues regarding these little microplastics. There's also the problem of migratory compounds that come off of plastic food packaging in particular has been an interest of mine. But I feel like because the climate crisis is such an urgent issue right now for all of us, and there are so many intersectional components, I wondered if you could solidify this connection for our listeners between plastics and climate change? Yeah. So plastics, as I said, are manufactured from oil and gas and largely in the U.S. are manufactured from gases from hydraulic fracturing. Just a few weeks ago, Beyond Plastics released a report on this that looked at the emissions from plastic manufacturing from extraction to disposal And this builds on a report from the Center for International Environmental Law that was released in 2019. Our report is called The New Coal, Plastics and Climate Change, and it's available on our website, beyondplastics.org. And this report found that by 2030, the emissions from plastics manufacturing, from hydraulic fracturing to the ethane crackers, where the gases are turned into plastic to transportation and disposal, which includes incineration and chemical recycling, those emissions will be greater than the emissions from coal-fired power in the United States by 2030, and they are already significant. In 2020, these emissions were the equivalent of 116 average-sized coal-fired power plants, and it's important to note that this is a very, very conservative estimate because these calculations were based on self-reported emissions that are publicly available through the EPA, 
and the EPA requires some but not all facilities to report their emissions, and they require those facilities to report some but not all types of emissions. So this is really just an undercount. Hmm. So for the consumer then, most of the responsibility is put on the consumer's shoulders. And I thought the bathtub analogy was really appropriate there because we as consumers, we can control a little bit how much plastic comes into our homes, but we can't turn off that tap. How do we get that tap turned off? We get there through political will and civic engagement, one of my favorite things. And thankfully, a lot more people are getting engaged with the civic processes. And this is exactly how we do it, because we need policy desperately in the United States to address this issue, to address climate change, and to address environmental injustice. The emissions from plastics manufacturing 90% of those emissions are released into just 18 communities. And those communities are two thirds more likely to be black and indigenous people of color. So this is also an environmental racism issue. It's a very intersectional issue that touches every aspect of our politics. And some legislation has been introduced to address this, including the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act of 2021, which has more than 100 co-sponsors in the House. I encourage anyone listening to look up that piece of legislation and see if your representative is a co-sponsor. There's also a Senate bill. It's also been introduced in the Senate. There are some other bills that would address this. There's the End Polluter Welfare Act, which would end the fossil fuel subsidies that are driving the petrochemical build out. And I did forget to mention that this problem is growing because Fossil fuel companies are banking on plastics and petrochemicals as their plan B because we're decarbonizing our electricity sector and our transportation sector. So plastics are driven by extraction and the industry has invested more than $200 billion in new petrochemical and plastics facilities in the United States. And the amount of plastic that the United States will produce could quadruple by 2050 without regulatory intervention. So this is an urgent issue for our legislators to address, for our media to address, and for people to engage with at whatever level they're at in their communities. I was thinking back to the health implications when you mentioned those few communities, and I wondered if you were aware of any interventions by, say, state or regional health departments, say, trying to follow birth defects or developmental delays related to the amounts of plastics or endocrine disruptors found in the bloodstreams of those who are affected. Yeah, I do not know of any efforts by departments of health to track those impacts. And I can't really speak to that, but I have lived in a frontline community in New York. I lived next to a hazardous waste incinerator called Norlight, and this facility burned a bunch of nasty stuff, including aqueous film-forming foam, which contains PFAS in it. And from that experience, I lived there for three years, I found that the Department of Health is not reacting. It's very, very difficult to prove that health impacts are coming from any one facility. And it's also very expensive. And I found that regulatory bodies were not 
they were reacting rather than following the precautionary principle, which is we shouldn't release something into the environment unless we know that it's safe. Rather, it's the other way around. It's they were burning things without knowing they were safe. And then later they would go back and backtrack and do testing as they did with the the aqueous film forming foam. So long story short, no, I don't think that health studies are going to get us there. And I, I don't think people should have to prove either that these emissions are bad for you. I think that that's just obvious. Right. Oh, I totally agree about the precautionary principle. And I also think that there should be some responsibility on the producer. So again, it gets back to the consumer. It's like, well, if you're buying these products, make sure you recycle them, even though they're not really fully recycled, nor is recycling very easy. So I think that going farther upstream and holding those corporations responsible for, hey, you basically put this into our environment. Now figure out a way to get it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a concept called extended producer responsibility. That's part of the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act. And some states are enacting this. The Maine's governor just signed a state extended producer responsibility law. And the concept is simple. Major consumer brands produce a lot of plastic packaging. Talking about Coke, Nestle, Unilever, Johnson & Johnson, Colgate, Palmolive. They pump our market full of plastic, single-use disposable plastics. And communities and taxpayers have to pay to manage and dispose of that plastic, whether it's through landfilling or incineration or recycling efforts, which are really futile trying to recycle plastics. So extended producer responsibility says if you put out that plastic into the market, you have to be financially responsible for what happens to it. And I think that's a really smart policy. Yeah, I agree. I want to get back to the barriers and the hurdles of getting some of these plastic bills passed. So for example, the Break Free of Plastics Pollution Act And again, we can go to the Beyond Plastics website. I'll provide that link to learn more about this particular legislation. Is it that the fossil fuel industry has such great control over not only our regulators, but our legislators through financial contributions that that's really the barrier in getting these policies passed? There's a lot of barriers and they're very connected with the reason why we can't get climate change policies passed. There are the fossil fuel contributions and the fossil fuel industry has a lot of lobbying power. So that's part of it. It's partly that the federal government doesn't have control in some of these instances, like building ethane crackers. Some of the states are more friendly to industry than others, although the federal government could put a moratorium on new permits for ethane crackers if they wanted to, which an ethane cracker is where ethane gas from hydraulic fracturing gets manufactured into polyethylene plastic. It's that the fossil fuel industry has a lot of propaganda and put out a lot of messaging and that we can't live without plastics, oil and gases and everything that we use. We can't possibly live without it. And they create jobs, which they don't create um, very many permanent jobs. And some members of the public are in that camp with that the extraction is beneficial. 
So, and our politics are just generally polarized right now, right? We see a lot of extremes on many issues, not just plastics, voting rights. And, you know, I'm sure anyone listening will know what I'm talking about if you read the news. So um, one of the greatest challenges before us is to heal that division and to realize that it's not your fault or my fault or anyone listening. It's not their fault that this is happening. It's because they're not the ones extracting the oil and gas. So if we can be united on let's keep it in the ground and come up with alternative solutions and adjust transition and address environmental injustice. I mean, we've got a long way to go, but I'm hopeful. Well, that's promising. I do want to ask about bioplastics because that has been also given to us as an alternative. Many of these are manufactured with corn and soy. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on those? Not any better than regular plastics. And I'll tell you why. There's bioplastic and then there's quote unquote compostable plastic. And there's absolutely no regulation on the labeling. So anyone familiar with what cage-free means or vegetarian fed means and those food labels, all natural, like there's no regulatory body that says this is what bio-based means or compostable means and, and enforcing that. So bio-based plastic is essentially just plastic manufactured from corn or soy or sugar cane or any other source of carbon that wasn't extracted. And it functions the exact same as plastic that's made from fossil fuels. It doesn't biodegrade. And compostable plastics are not really compostable. And less than 5% of those compostable plastics are actually getting composted. I wondered now that China is no longer taking our recycled plastics, what do you do when you have something that is made from plastic? Is it smarter to put it in a landfill? I mean, the smartest thing to do is not to buy it in the first place, but we all have plastics in our home. I mean, I'm looking at the pen in my hand mm-hmm. that I'm making notes with as I'm talking to you. And I'm thinking, this is plastic. It's going to dry out at some point. What is the smartest thing for me to do with it? To try to get it into a recyclable bin or to put it in a landfill? Yeah. So most plastics aren't recyclable. And I honestly just throw away most of my plastic. I do try to not buy plastic. I'm very lucky to have a wonderful farmer's market where I live that I can get most of my produce from that is not in plastic. You know, bring your own bags, reduce your plastic use wherever you can, then reuse and repair whatever you can. Do recycle your valuable plastics. So PET bottles, if you drink Coke or bottled water and nothing wrong with liking Coke. It's Coke's responsibility that they put out so much plastic. If you live in a state with a bottle law, definitely take those bottles and cans back. But for the most part, your plastic, if it's not number one or number two plastic, you can just throw it away. All right. Well, unfortunately, our time is up. Do you have just one last message that you want to leave our listeners with? I would say learn about this issue think about plastic and it's not hard because you're reminded of it all the time and get engaged, write a letter to the editor, ask for a meeting with your, your representatives on this issue on the break free from plastic pollution act. And a great place to start is beyond plastics website, beyond plastics.org. 
That's wonderful. All right. Well, in closing, I must thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Alexis Goldsmith. She is the National Organizing Director at Beyond Plastics, where she is focused on building the grassroots movement that connects plastics to issues like climate change, environmental justice, and our precious health. And I will provide a link to beyondplastics.org so people can learn more. Thank you so much for your time today, Alexis. Thank you, Melinda.